And I was delighted to see that the customer is king here. Any messages for the listeners? I, I just say that this show's for use, and if we can help you in any way, we'll be delighted to do that. The Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Good morning and welcome to the Go Radio Business Show with Sir Tom Hunter and Lord Willie Hockey. I'm Donald Martin, editor of the Herald and Herald on Sunday, and your host as we discuss record debts and record growth and talk to our guests, Karen Betts, Chief Executive of the Scotch Whiskey Association, and Stuart Patrick, Chief Executive of the Glasgow Chamber of Commerce. And in the boardroom this week, Tom and Willie answer your calls and provide business advice. If you have a question or want guidance, get in touch by emailing gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. So gentlemen, you've both joined other leading Scottish entrepreneurs committing an additional one million of grants and loans to Scottish Edge. That's the UK's biggest funding competition for potential high-growth businesses. Why is that investment so important? What will it deliver, Tom? Well, first of all, Donna, I'm over the moon. This was the Scottish business community rallying round and helping those on the first run of the ladder. So we decided Scottish Edge has been going now for some time, but we wanted to scale it up because we've seen since the pandemic more people thinking of starting a business or scaling a business, which is exactly, I remember calling Willie right the early days of the pandemic and him saying, Tom, this is going to be terrible for jobs. We need to think of something. So... I'm really indebted to Willie and Susan, Brian Souter, Chris Vanderkill, Paddy Burns of Chroma Ventures, Kevin Doran of Parsley Box, James Watt of Brewdog. It was the fastest fundraising in history. And Willie was first, by the way. Um, probably Susan, if I'm honest about it. <laughs> but um, it was just simply, here it is, Scottish Edge has created almost 2,000 new jobs, the businesses that we support, and we need to scale it up. We need to get behind Scotland's new starts, scale-ups. They are the lifeblood of the Scottish economy. Indeed. Willie? Well, I was delighted to, to say yes and help. Obviously, I've been involved with the Edge for many years, probably since it started. But if you if you just take the Edge and just deal with the facts... If you take over just over £16 million has been invested in helping startups and scale up businesses and it's generated over 2,000 jobs. If you take that on a like-for-like like basis with what Scottish Enterprise would look worth for inward investment, right, is an unbelievable return and the leverage is fantastic. So that's not having a go at Scottish Enterprise that's saying that we should... That's why that we've been saying for weeks and weeks and weeks that the conveyor belt that we have to create wealth in the country, we, m we must make sure that the conveyor belt, that all the parts are aligned and they're joined and they're working together. And I think that Scotland is very, very fortunate. And a lot of you don't Tom, by getting everybody to work together. And I was delighted to be involved to help with the funding of EDGE because the, for us, you know, Tom has said it many times, it's all about getting a, a, a good bang for your buck in investment and we look for more than that in our charitable giving and I don't think, I'm trying to think if there's any other organisation that we'll give money to that we think, wow, that was a great return for your money. So, and, and, and well done to Evelyn and all the team there at the EDGE. So, 
just to finish off, once again, thanks to the people who supported it. I don't know of any other business community in the world. And when I used to travel, I used to look who just gets behind those who have had a wee bit of success or who are maybe a few steps above this rung of the ladder, helping those who are coming behind her, taking their first step. It's brilliant and it's brilliant that it's Scottish. There's also some good news that Glasgow is the fourth most popular UK city to start a business last year with more than 2,000 startups. And they're saying as a result of the pandemic hardship, 33% falling redundancy, 20% in need of extra income. So where do you see the opportunities and what should would-be entrepreneurs be looking for and mindful of? I don't think that this is a coincidence that we're sitting forth. I think all the work we've been talking about, we've all been involved in for the last 25 years, a way back to Entrepreneurial Exchange, Entrepreneurial Spark, Entrepreneurial Hub, Entrepreneurial Scotland, right, The Edge, all of these things, you know, have all contributed. I, I remember when we first had the chat about this, Tom explaining to a group of us that... We were in the bottom quartile. Scotland was in the bottom quartile for business failures. And I think that the work that's been done over the past 25 years has been phenomenal. Yeah, the amazing statistic which really drives me in all this is that in the UK, in the next five years, 100% of the net new jobs will come from small and medium-sized businesses, Willie. Because those are the ones who can deal with the disruption. Big companies are slower to react, they're slower to see the change. Small and medium-sized enterprises are the ones that are entrepreneurial, see the change, make it happen. 100% of the net new jobs are going to come from them and Scotland should be leading the way. Well, the IMF predicts growth of 5.3% this year, 5.1% in 2022, the fastest since 1988. And early indicators are reporting economic activity accelerating at the fastest pace in eight years. Is that reason for optimism or a flash in the pan? Willie? I think it's great news. Um, I listened to uh, Lord Jim O'Neill yesterday, a very highly respected um, economist, and Jim was saying on, on the Zoom call that even as a economist, he cannot believe the facts that are going about the moment, uh, the amount of money that people have saved. Right, the money that is sitting in bank accounts now is actually unbelievable. So I think there is going to be a huge boom in the next six months once the, the handcuffs are taken off. Uh, and I don't think that will lead to a bust. And I would just say there is a big, big difference from coming out of the crash in 2008 than this blip that we've had because of COVID. Couldn't agree more, Willie. This is different from the financial crisis. It's, it's probably more deeper felt. But... I had to go to London last week. I had essential business there. I'd, I took the time to walk Oxford Street. It was a wee bit sad, to be honest with you, being an old-fashioned retailer and seeing Topshop, all, probably the best fashion store in the world at one point, all blocked up. But there was new things happening. There was people about, and Oxford Street would be maybe 40% tourists when they're allowed, so they weren't there. But there was... The sun was shining, <laughs> there was optimism and the people I spoke to couldn't wait to get back and I actually read this week that in Scotland there's 4 million people in Scotland, there's only 5.3 million of us in total who are living in areas where there are no new instances of COVID. 
The vaccine has been a miracle, but we need to get opened up now. Well, talking of optimism, we're now joined by Stuart Patrick, Chief Executive of the Glasgow Chamber of Commerce, for a roundup of what's making the news in the Chamber this month. Welcome back, Stuart. I guess with lockdown easing, you have a fairly upbeat message this month? I hope so. Let's I see. hope so too, Let's Stuart. See. Come Let's on, see. you're always optimistic. <laughs> okay, well, I'd call April a month of anticipation, oh. a planning for the first major step in opening up for so many of the businesses that have borne exactly four months of lockdown. On Monday, non-essential shops got going again and so did hospitality, albeit under pretty severe restrictions. In Glasgow, early feedback from our retail members has been pretty positive. Uh, The footfall on Monday started strongly with some queuing and a general appreciation that the City Council has done its bit to spring clean the streets and get the centre back into shape. Well done. Our hospitality businesses were a bit less impressed uh, with the confusion that was created by the Scottish Government guidance, which seemed to make big changes on how the one metre distancing rule works, but which the government subsequently denied. Uh, We are watching closely to make sure that there are no major changes to the rules that were used last summer. The tables did seem a bit spaced out. I was out on Monday and I couldn't believe some of them were like three metres apart. Ah, Well, it depends, you see, whether you think that the rules mean that you should have your tables one metre apart or the people at the tables one metre apart. That's where the confusion has arisen in the the guidance. This, This drives me mental. Who sits and makes up these rules? It's obviously somebody who's never operated a restaurant, a pub, a hotel... Come on. But there's a lot of health and safety people going out, visiting these establishments and pulling them up, I believe. Is that what you're hearing from your members, Stuart? We are aware that the City Council's environmental health will have its role to play. Um, We are chatting with them. (laughs) It's very very level of you there, Stuart. (laughs) We're we're chatting with them. We're trying to make sure that there's a certain reason applied uh, when you're looking at the rules. But I I, I appreciate that the rules, as they have been reinterpreted, there is a, a desire not to introduce any changes, but we're also told... Don't worry, um, you'll not get pulled up until about the 17th of May when the, the second, the next round comes uh, comes through. But hey, we're still waiting for uh, final confirmation of that. So that's where the confusion has arisen, caused a bit of uh, discontent. On safety, for those that are worrying about safety in the city centre and still want to avoid busy streets, then think about coming in during the week because most offices are not going to be open until at least late June. So footfall will likely be calmer Monday to Friday. The Chamber's still pushing for clarity on the government's office reopening plans since so many city centre businesses depend on weekday trade from office workers. And we appreciate that office working habits are changing, but Glasgow's office market started in a very different position compared to other big cities across the UK. And that's because Glasgow currently has one of the smallest stocks of available grade A office space. Before COVID, we were really struggling to get any speculative office developments to happen. All the major projects that you see in the ground today, and there are quite a few, they were all pre-let. Barclays, JP Morgan, Virgin Money and HMRC uh, to name some of the biggest. But we still do expect some 
uh, home working impact on demand for city centre offices and so therefore on city centre footfall. Adershaw Goddard's Scottish Business Monitor with Fraser Van Allender this week suggests that just over a quarter of respondents have or will reduce their office footprint but then around two-thirds were also reporting problems with home working on managing staff performance and on workplace innovation. So, um, together, the City Council and the Chamber of Commerce, through the City Centre Task Force, will be starting detailed work next month assessing just how much the pandemic is going to affect future business for City Centre shops, offices, hotels and the nighttime economy and, and what policies could help convert empty properties to fresh uses. Uh, and also along with our friends at Aberdeen and Edinburgh Chambers of Commerce, we launched a review this week with the Glasgow School of Art, with Brodie's and with Anderson, Anderson and Brown, the accountants, of the importance that cities and city centres will have in national economic recovery and the actions we think government's going to need to take to support their regrowth. Um, and one really positive sign for the future in the east of Glasgow city centre is the Glasgow City Innovation District. Based in and around Strathclyde University's campus, um, the district's designed to bring in technology companies, property investment and supporting businesses that get value from being located alongside the university. I was listening very recently to companies like M Squared in Photonics and Quantum, Bellrock in Data Science and Nude in fin FinTech uh, as just how important it is to co-locate with university departments. So being in the city centre is better for them uh, than home working. The university is also busy uh, sorting through all the practical technologies and investments that will make the district properly climate neutral, such as extracting heat from the River Clyde. And so we think this is one case study that's going to be really helpful when we're doing our presentations for Glasgow at COP26. And of course, we're still waiting for the final word on just what COP26 is going to look like, given where we'll, we will all have reached in November in tackling the pandemic, and it's expected very soon. Um, and then on one final positive note, uh, we welcomed the announcement of Scotland's 1,000th placement onto the UK government's kickstart scheme for young people. And a wee source of pride for us at Glasgow Chamber is that we have started 115 of those with Chamber members yeah, in and around Glasgow. Brilliant. And we've got another 300 places ready to go. So our members are really stepping up when it comes to helping the young get into the world of work. Brilliant. Fantastic. That was a really Fantastic. positive update, Stuart. Thank Stuart, this is much. not a spoiler, but I can tell you when H is unveiled, you'll find it was COP26. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Stuart. Now, in the latest of our series on Great Scots, we tell the story of William Grant. From cowherder to founding father of one of the world's most beloved whiskey brands, it's fair to say William Grant had more than a little help along the way. Yes, William Grant and Son was the truest form of a family business. It was in 1887 that William Grant opened his first distillery in Scotland with the help of his seven sons and two daughters. And it is the largest of the handful of Scotch whiskey distillers remaining in family ownership. William Grant was born in humble circumstances, in the Speyside settlement of Dufftown in December 1839, being employed as a bookkeeper and later manager of Mortlach, the town's only distillery at the time. However, William Grant was keen to create his own distillery, and with second-hand equipment and the help of five of his sons, the family built the Glenfiddich Distillery from start to finish, and their first spirit flowed on Christmas Day 1887. 
Five years later, a second distillery named Balvenie was built alongside Glenfiddich, and in 1898, William Grant began to blend whiskies, establishing a Glasgow branch office and blending operation in 1903. Exports to Canada and the USA soon followed, while William Grant's son-in-law, Charles Gordon, travelled to the Far East in attempts to create a truly global brand. By 1914, the company had more than 60 offices supporting exports to 30 countries worldwide. In 1957, German refugee Hans Schlager was commissioned to design Grant's now iconic triangular bottle, and the following year saw concentrated efforts to market Glenfiddich single malt in England and abroad, at a time when single malts were not even drunk in most of Scotland, leading to the brand's ultimate position as the best-selling single malt across the globe. William Grant & Sons has always taken a long-term view to supporting its people, its communities and its business. Building on a long tradition of supporting community groups and charities, the company now sets aside 1% of pre-tax profits each year for use by the William Grant Foundation and in 2019 alone, over £3 million was donated to 97 organisations around the world. Now in its fifth generation, the business is still family-owned and has remained true to William Grant's original, closely guarded recipe. In the words of the Grant family themselves, when the right people stand together, great things happen. Fred Scott's on the Go Radio Business Show. What a brilliant story once again. Who who came up with this, Willie, about Great Scots? I think it was your idea. <laughs> um, but I just love these stories and I think that's what should be taught in our schools. I mean, for a business right at the turn of, you know, 1800 and they were thinking about the Far East, they were thinking about America, Willie, it's brilliant. I got to know Grant Gordon, who's the current um, philanthropic side of the business and he took me down to Girvan. And down in Girvan, it's this amazing site, Willie, which you can't see from the road. They make Hendrix gin there as well. Um, but the big thing that's happening in Girvan is there's two and a half million casks of whiskey stored there. It probably doesn't want to, to tell them. There's high security as well. <laughs> and when you see this, it, as far as I can see, right up to the rafters, casks of whiskey. And he said, every day, it gets a wee bit more valuable. <laughs> Fantastic. I think it's amazing that you think, Tom mentioned there, imagine what it must have been like to try to get to the Far East in 1912. I, <laughs> I mean, it must have taken months. So if people think that it's easy to build up an iconic brand or a world-renowned brand, this is the hard work of the pioneers that are involved in this family, you know, the seven sons, the two daughters back in the day. This is a great lesson for people that that's what you have to do to be successful, you know. And, and I think, again, to hear at the, the end there about how the, a way back then they thought about giving back and now, you know, the, 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 the modern-day families have, have continued that great tradition and giving back, you know, 1% of their net profits. And, and if everybody done that, you know, the, the place would be a much, much better place. But what a fantastic success story for Scotland and I'm glad that we've put it out there today. Brilliant. Well, talking of whisky, coming up after the break, we'll be talking to the Chief Executive of the Scotch Whisky Association, Karen Betts. And in the boardroom, we'll be putting your questions to Tom and Willie. If you want business advice, please email gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. 
This is the Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Supporting the lifeblood of the Scottish economy. Welcome back as we are joined by Karen Betts, Chief Executive of the Scotch Whiskey Association. Don't forget, if you want business advice or have a question for Tom and Willie, you can email us at gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. Karen, welcome to the show. Thank you. I normally kick off asking people about their career journey, but I remember when we first met, you just completed an epic journey, a quite interesting one, because you were an ambassador in Morocco. And then obviously just taking up the job as CEO. Tell us about that particular journey, if you wouldn't mind. Well, that particular journey was driving from Rabat in Morocco, where we were living, uh, back to Edinburgh. And it was a bit of an epic journey. It involved two ferries. Uh, We had two relatively small children. We also had two dogs with us who had the complexity of having all sorts of vaccinations along the way. So they would be allowed into Spain and then into into the UK. So yeah, it was a it was quite an interesting journey. It was meant to be fun, but I think <laughs> that by the time we uh, we arrived back in the UK, my husband and I were uh, pretty exhausted by the whole venture. <laughs> you had a 16-year career in the Foreign and Commonwealth Office before joining as CEO in May 2017. Was that career in diplomacy the perfect credentials for the role you're in now and the challenges you faced? I think it's certainly really useful background. I mean, the skills I use now as CEO of the Scotch Whiskey Association are very similar to the skills you use uh, as a diplomat, as an ambassador. You know, I represent the industry in public now. I represent it to government. I engage with government on policy issues or policy problems, like the problem we've had with US tariffs recently. And I, you know, I understand how governments operate, how they make decisions, which is really important then for an export industry like Scotch whiskey. I mean, we export to 180 countries around the world. So kind of understanding how those, uh, how the governments in those countries will operate, how trade with those countries will operate and what we do when things go wrong, when they don't go smoothly is, is obviously really important to the industry. So how are the industry going to bounce back from both the pandemic, Brexit and, of course, the tariffs that you had uh, with America? Well, I mean, you know, 2020 was a, was a tough year for the industry, you know, for the Scotch whisky industry as it was for, for many other industries. Uh, we were grappling with the closure of the hospitality industry all around the world. So that's the closure of, of hotels, bars, restaurants. Uh, we were also grappling with the closure of global travel retail. So that's duty free to, uh, to, to you and me, the, the bottle of whiskey we pick up uh, in an airport as we're, as we're passing through. You know, if, if global travel retail was an export market, it would be our biggest market. So, wow, wow. so sales and export uh, in, in airports are really important to us. And then also we had the problem of, of US tariffs um, last year. So in 2020, our global exports fell by nearly a quarter. So that's really significant. We lost about 10 years of growth. And for an wow. industry that had been growing uh, on average over the last 10 years at, at 5%, a year that's you know that was significant 
But we are now seeing, you know, Scotland, the UK, um, other countries start to come out of the uh, of the COVID crisis. I mean, obviously not in some countries, really serious situation in India at the moment, but UK, North America, Europe heading in the right direction. China and Asia actually are significantly back on their feet and China is, you know, is operating very normally from our point of view. Now, so you know the, the the end is the end of the sort of COVID crisis. I think is in sight, if not the, the COVID pandemic in itself. So the industry is really, really focused now on on recovery and how we start to build back from from the losses of last year. Hospitality will start to reopen. Travel will start again. I think it probably will take longer to recover. So, you know, our companies are out there in those 180 export markets working away now to make sure we can recover as quickly as possible. And we at the Scotch Whiskey Association are doing what we always do to to remove trade barriers. We just got a suspension in the US tariffs, which was really important to us. We're talking to the UK government about uh, the deal they're negotiating with Australia, about the trade talks they're having with India. So there are a lots of promising things on the horizon, I think, that could help with that recovery. Where do you see the markets of tomorrow and which parts of the world are distillers targeting to ensure future growth? Well, I mean, I always say in response to that question, there isn't a single market in the world in which Scotch whisky is not interested. We export pretty much everywhere. You know, I challenge you to find a country that you can't get uh, a glass of scotch in. So, um, you know, there are particular themes, I think, in markets looking into the future. Emerging markets are obviously really important to us, and that is where significantly are future growth will be. So, I mean, I've mentioned India. India, a really important market to us. We have a 150% import tariff into India, so it's like a, an import tax. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty steep. And if we could get that tariff down, say, to about 30% over sort of five years or so, we think we could uh, increase exports by about £1.2 billion. Wow. So that is really significant. Yeah. Can, can I ask you, obviously with your experience, um, were you at the heart of convincing the Biden administration to reverse the tariffs laid down by the previous administration? So, I mean, we have been very closely engaged with yeah. the UK government and then indirectly really with the US government. I think, to be honest, there had been significant movement on the tariff before Trump left office. And that was really about a recognition in the UK, in the European Union and in the US that the underlying dispute that had caused the tariff, which was this big fight that's been going on between Boeing and Airbus for the last 16 years, there was recognition that that had to come to an end. It had to come to an end in itself, but also because, you know, that the world has moved in aircraft production. And I think there are concerns about how subsidies happen for aircraft, not least because China is producing so many aircraft now. So there was a recognition that that needed to come to an end, but we didn't manage to push anything over the line while the Trump administration was still in place. And I think the Biden team came in and thought this does really need to be looked at. It is a, a problem in our trade relationship with the UK and with Europe. And so very sensibly, from our point of view, they uh, they you know got into intense talks and agreed a suspension in the tariff. And so we've got until early July now for this Airbus-Boeing dispute to come to a permanent settlement. Yeah. And if that happens, the tariff will be removed 
altogether. So we are crossing our fingers that those negotiators are, are, you know, working round the clock to get that sorted. Maybe we should just send you over direct. (laughs) (laughs) Karen, can can I ask a a different question? I'm, I'm fascinated with how you become an ambassador and when did you know that you wanted to be one? Gosh, that's a tricky question. I mean, um, when did I know I wanted to be one? Well, I think I always really wanted to travel. I was always really fascinated in experiencing other people's countries and cultures and languages. And so, you know, really as soon as I could, I travelled and then started working overseas. So then joining the Foreign Office was a really natural fit. Uh, and it was fascinating. I had some great opportunities. I worked on some some fascinating things. I, you know, I've met... Uh, Come on, spill the beans, Karen. Spill the beans. <laughs> I don't know I've got very many beans to spill, but you do end up in some really privileged situations. You know, the Iran nuclear negotiations. Uh, I was stuck in a lift once with Angela Merkel at, uh, at a security <laughs> summit in Munich. So I did some really fascinating things and and as you progress in the foreign office uh, you become able to put yourself forward for ambassadorial roles and of course you know if that's what you're doing that's what you you want to do it and you move on up and and yeah it was a lot of fun yeah Sounds it. Fascinating. You've been all over the world, so you're in the British Embassy in Baghdad, Morocco and Washington. You've been a lawyer in London and Hong Kong. Where's your favourite place apart from Scotland? I mean, so out of all of those places, you know, I don't think I could pick a favourite place. It's just an impossible question. You know, I have loved all of those places for all sorts of different reasons and they have all been fascinating and I could talk about What's each the most of them memorable? for hours. Uh, I mean, some pretty memorable moments in Iraq. Um, I bet, yeah. I when was, were you there, Karen? I was there 2006 to 2007, so actually... Oh. Um, you know, really at the the worst part of a sectarian civil war that was uh, occurring across uh, across Iraq. And, you know, pretty serious moments, I think, for for the UK, for the US. We were very involved. Our militaries uh, were very involved. Um, We were under some pressure in the embassy. We used to get rockets and mortars fired at us on a fairly regular basis, which was, you know, it was one of those things, actually, it became scarier the longer you were there. It sort of operated in reverse to how I thought it would. I thought when I got there, you would just get used to it. And then actually, the more it happens, and the fact, the closer you get to going home, the closer you get to the end of your tour, the more you think... What, what if that's the one that's got my name on it? My um, <laughs> but it was, I mean, it was really interesting and it was very interesting working through a, a bunch of, of sort of reconciliation issues that we were pursuing with the Iraqis at the time about how you bring communities together who have uh, had tensions with each other for for hundreds of, uh, of years. So... Uh, so that was fascinating. Morocco was uh, was fascinating, really friendly, really beautiful country, fantastic travelling. And equally, I would say the US. Um, you know, as a European, you go and live in the US and you think you know it because you've watched all their television, <laughs> you've watched their films, they speak the same language. Yeah. And then you get there and you think, wow, this is really foreign. <laughs> and so I spent my first couple of years there feeling really foreign. Uh-huh. And then you kind of get into it. And my husband was working in the defence industry there at the time and we did think about staying. And 
by the time we got to the end of four years, you know, I think I, I could have stayed and made a life there. And that was in Washington, D.C.? Yeah. I have businesses across the States and uh, I felt the same as you until I got there and I realised that the people in my offices in Hong Kong, Singapore and Kuala Lumpur were more aligned with us than, than the people in the <laughs> States. You know, that I just couldn't believe the difference, although we did speak the same language that we just didn't understand each other. I find it fascinating how how different European and American views are on, on certain things. But yeah, it was a fascinating place to be. So how do you go from deciding, right, I've, I've done enough travelling the world as a civil servant, a very senior civil servant, to say, right, I'm, I want to get into the industry? Well, I think, uh, you know, there were a, a number of things that motivated our, our move back to Scotland. Some of them were personal. You know, Scotland's our home and, you know, at some point you need to be from somewhere. At some point you need to come and live back at home. You know, the more senior you get in the Foreign Office, the less choice you have about where you go. And if you, you know, both parts of a couple are trying to pursue careers, that becomes quite complicated. And I had also started my life in in the private sector. I was a lawyer in London and in Hong Kong uh, before I went into government. And there was something in me that wanted to come back into the private sector and and see if I could make it work, Um, you know, to see if I could come back and be successful in the private sector, you know, it's it was great in government. I had a really great time, but I don't think I wanted to be a public servant for the rest of my career. I wanted to make sure I still had the opportunity to change, the opportunity to be a bit flexible. And if, if, if you had the magic wand in your position now, what's the one thing to promote the Scotch whisky industry around the world you would change? Well, I mean... I, our companies are extremely good at promoting Scotch whisky yep. around the world. And I think it is one of the reasons why Scotch whisky is so successful. It is just superbly marketed. It becomes very culturally specific in some ways. I mean, I find it fascinating that, um, you know, in China, you will be offered green tea with your mm-hmm. whisky. In Japan, you're very likely to drink it as a highball with soda. Uh, in Spain, you may well be offered Coke with it. And so (laughs) I don't think, there's no way I could second guess our companies on how they have made Scotch whisky such a successful export. You know, it's superbly marketed. It is also, uh, you know, a brilliant product. It is consistently high quality. You know, everybody knows that the best whisky you can buy is from Scotland. Only from Scotland. Exactly, only from Scotland. (laughs) Can can I ask you, we have some singular, you know, iconic, world-renowned brands. Do we, do they they collaborate to market abroad in any examples? Do you, do you help with that? We collaborate a lot, but it is all on, you know, pre- Market. Yes. So, so before the whiskey basically leaves Scotland shores yes. and goes, you know, into distribution and into sales, the, the companies are ferociously competitive yeah. when it comes to sales and marketing. What they are very good at, and what I think is, you know, at the root of some of the industry's success, is that in those pre-competitive issues, they collaborate very successfully. So they fund us to, you know, to go around the world and remove trade barriers. They collaborate really successfully. And again, this is an issue on which we have been very involved in sustainability. So on all of the things that we will have to do to, for instance, transition the heat we need for distilling onto 
uh, onto decarbonised sources of, of energy. They are collaborating on all of that. And that means that we can share experience, we can benefit from each other's experience. And I think it really helps the smaller companies because inevitably the bigger companies have got more time and resource to invest in the innovation and the ingenuity that will be needed to get to, to net zero. But, uh, but in doing it together, we can, you know, we can bring the whole sector along with us. I think it's a great example of how a sector where individually you know, you're know you competing fiercely but you do realise that you do need a, a body in the centre that acts in your behalf for, for all of you and I think obviously with the tariff situation that's proven to definitely be, be worthwhile so it's, I'm amazed that some other industries I don't know of the Refrigeration and Air Conditioning Association where <laughs> someone works for us all but I think that this is obviously why the, 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 Are you this, offering Karen a job here uh, no, I'm just saying it may be an opening. <laughs> well, I always say that for, for industries to be successful overseas, you need a good trade body. So yeah. that's a good advert yeah. for the Scotch Whiskey Association. But it is also in the Scotch whiskey industry's roots. You know, they collaborate, I think, fundamentally because blended whiskey is still the majority of whiskey produced, and not every company will own all of the distilleries from which the components of their blend comes from. So they have to collaborate there. And I think geography has got something to do with it as well. You know, if if your boiler blows, uh, you know, somewhere in the the northeast of Scotland and you phone up your headquarters in Glasgow and say, I need a new part, and they say, well, it's a bit snowy over Dromocta and we don't think we can get it to you for five days, you go to the distillery down the road and say, do you mind if... Could you lend us a part? And so there's all of... Or, know, or phone city technical services. <laughs> <laughs> well, our company's fine. We do supply <laughs> boiler parts. <laughs> Thank you for that lead in there, Karen. <laughs> no, but that's great how they work together. You know, that they do, that marketing is fierce, but they're behind the scenes that, that they, they work to help each other. But as you say, but they have to. You're an advisor to the UK's Government's Board of Trade, Chair of the CBI's International Trade and Investment Council, and on the Scottish Government's Trade Board. From a business perspective, how do you think we've handled the pandemic? So, I mean, I, you know, there is no doubt going to be a lot said and written about this into the future. You know, sitting, sitting here, here and now, I think... You know, everybody did the best that they could in a very difficult set of circumstances. And when you look back on the, I think, £350 billion that the UK government borrowed last year, and you look at the various schemes to support business and the economy that the UK government rolled out, that the Scottish government rolled out at very short notice... Uh, You know, I mean, that was pretty extraordinary in itself. And you look at how, you know, the business community responded. And, you know, from our point of view, the Scotch whisky industry produced, I think it was about 90 million litres of high-strength ethanol for hand sanitizer and for use, you know, for use uh, in, uh, in, in medical situations. And that was provided to the NHS, to to care homes, to other frontline services. So I think everybody stepped up in difficult circumstances. I mean, the real question now is obviously what happens in the recovery. And I think that, you know, I think we are yet really to understand the size and shape of that. You know, while the furlough scheme continues, it's quite hard to understand what the the real economic impact is going forward. And that is going to, you know, that's going to transpire 
over time. But I think the best we can all do is to try to turn our businesses around as quickly as possible. You know, from, from the Scotch whisky industry's point of view, hospitality and tourism are really important and getting those industries back on their feet will be really important. You know, if you look at hospitality and, and particularly the young people that hospitality employs and the career paths it provides for uh, for young people with a variety of different educational backgrounds, I think getting those businesses up and running again and making sure that, you know, a generation of young people are not significantly uh, detrimentally impacted by the pandemic will be really important. So that's what we will be focused on. We will be focused on getting our production back up to where it is, getting our investments going again. You know, we were significantly investing for future growth before the pandemic. We will be getting back onto that now and then doing everything we can to get this, the hospitality and the tourism sectors back on their feet. And in Scotland, you know, Scotch whisky is, is important in tourism terms. Uh, the distilleries are now, I think, the, the third, collectively, the third most visited tourist really? attraction in Scotland. Wow. Well, I can't yeah. wait to visit a few, and it sounds like there's grounds for optimism. Well, many of them are open now, yeah. and, uh, and you are allowed to have a tasting at the end of your tour. Oh, so we well, indoors. no point in going indoors. unless you yes. have a tasting. <laughs> well, Karen, it's, it's been a fascinating story. I, I've loved hearing your personal story, and then, but we, we need your members to flourish because it's so important to Scotland so all the luck in the world to them and to you thanks for coming in Thank to the Go Radio Business Show today it's been a pleasure hearing the story um, and as, as Tom says obviously we've had some great historic stories about great Scottish businesses obviously the whisky industry is at the heart of that Absolutely. some of the most iconic names throughout the globe so again thank you very much for coming this morning and sharing the story well not at all it's been a pleasure thank you Karen coming up next it's the board you can't afford with Hunter and Hockey if you're looking for business insight or have a general business question for Tom and Willie, please email gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. The board you couldn't afford. This is the Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Welcome back as we go into the boardroom with Hunter and Hockey and answer your calls with business advice, insight and inspiration. It's the board you can't afford. If you wish to speak directly to Tom and Willie or have any questions you want read out in the show, please email gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk and you can join the Twitter conversation at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. We're going to our phone lines now and first up is Lucas Krishka. Welcome to the show, Lucas. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Hi, how are you doing? Hi, Lucas. Welcome. Welcome, Lucas. Thank you so much. So you've got a question for Tom and Willie then? I do, certainly do, yes. Um, my question uh, would be, uh, because I run the business called Time to Dine, uh, which is the um, luxury food and dining uh, experience home delivery service. And my question would be, obviously now that there is a possibility of few restrictions and moving out of lockdowns, what do you think are future growth prospects of fine dining at home industry that so um, substantial growth through 2020? Hi, Lucas. It's Tom here. Um, first of all, give your business a wee plug. How do you how, how do we find you? Um, uh, you find me online uh, through the social media platform Time to Dine, Time as a Herb, number two, Dine. 
And as I said, basically we, we bring uh, fine dining quality food and wine direct to your doorstep uh, on Fridays and Saturdays. Brilliant, brilliant. So I think your question is a brilliant question. I spent a bit of time last week with my team in London and we were brainstorming, coming out of COVID, what's changed forever? Yeah. And what's only been temporarily changed? And that's what you're asking here. So I don't really know. I think... Um, I like going out for a meal, but, you know, the ease of having stuff delivered to your door was also. So I think some of that will stay. I think some of it will go back to the face-to-face dining. What do you think? Well, uh, certainly because this is the only concept we have with my business partner, uh, Peter. So we don't have actual restaurant as yet. Right. Um, Obviously, we rely on this concept um, to continue. We genuinely believe it will be um, obviously continuing throughout the year. Um, obviously, lots of restaurants who were doing at-home dining uh, throughout, obviously, coronavirus uh, will go back to restaurant service. So I genuinely believe that will kind of clear the market for us as well um, with this concept. Um, but yeah, obviously, we expect, you know, we expect uh, to see the drop. Um, but I'm not entirely sure, you know, how big drop it's going to be. Morning Lucas, it's Willie here. Yes, hi Willie, how you doing? Thanks for calling in. Can I ask you, during COVID and the restrictions, has your business uh, increased dramatically or has it affected you with the different changes in restrictions? To be honest, the whole idea actually started uh, when coronavirus uh, started too. So we are basically a very, very small business. Um, when we started operating seven months ago, um, you know, we started delivering on weekly basis around 40 to 50 boxes. And now, at the moment, we are capping at 200 uh, boxes week in, week out. Wow. You know, so it's pretty good. And obviously, we have lots of support. And uh, we believe that, it's you know, this concept is here to stay. And it's nice to bring something positive to people's homes. Right. So here's what I would say to you. It's like every other business, right? Once people have tried you, if you are good they will continue to use you. Mm-hmm. So if COVID has been a good excuse for more and more people because of restrictions to try you, I've got no doubt, right, that people will continue to try you and your business could grow. So I would just say that if the standard of your food has been first class, mm-hmm. I think that your business that you've you know that, you, that you've had over the last year will be maintained and will probably grow. Word, there's nothing better than word of mouth if you're in the food industry, yeah. <laughs> right? It can either, it can either help you or it can kill you. <laughs> and and I would just say to you that if your quality has been good, then I, I would have no worries at all about my business. I think that the growth will continue. That's amazing. Uh, don't get me wrong. My business partner Peter is a guy, uh, you know, behind the scenes who's in the kitchen 24/7, and he's very talented. Always um, <laughs> feedback. I, I think you have to get him help <laughs> so Lucas listen I think well done in taking this challenge and making it an opportunity that's what this show is all about well done in growing your business and keep in touch with the show yep. and let us know how it goes and best of luck to you. Best, best of luck best of luck thanks thank for your call Lucas thank you so much all the best bye bye good morning Heather welcome to the show hi there good morning uh, delighted to have you on you've got a brilliant question for Tom and Willie so fire away Okay, my question to you both is, if you could time travel, would you go to the past or future and why? Oh, Heather, well, good morning to you. Hi, good morning. Have you got a business, Heather? No, I don't, no. No, not yet, not yet. Not Um, yet. (laughs) Well, 
I love your question. So I think I've got two answers. I think I would go into the future, find out what was working, then come back to the present and invest in it and make a fortune. <laughs> um, but the other thing I was thinking about, and Willie made the point, we've been hearing all these great Scott stories. And really, just at the turn of the century, and not even the last century, the one before that, Scots were pioneering around the world, going to Asia, going to America, when it was so difficult to do that, I think that must have been a golden time to be in business as Scots yeah, led yeah. the world through the Enlightenment. It must have been so exciting. So I would have loved to have been about in those days. How about you, Willie? Um, well, one thing I've always thought about, I would love to have been a teenager. I'd love to have been 17 in 1957. I'd have loved to be a teenager in the 50s. Really? Yes, because I thought that's when young people, the handcuffs came off. Uh -huh. They could actually in, enjoy life. And I think music played a big, big part in that. I loved the way that people dressed then. I loved the way they enjoyed themselves. And I think music just became, you know, it was, we went from the big band sound now to having Elvis and, you know, and everyone yeah. else at that time. So if I could travel back, that's an era I would like to, you know, yeah. I'd like to have been in. Um, plus the fact, you know, I'd probably been about 20 something and I'd been in Lisbon watching my team winning the European <laughs> Cup. So that's another reason why I'd like well, to go back. Part, really. yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, so Heather, how about you? What's the answer to your own question? Well, again, I agree about I would go back to an era where the styles and the clothes um, were fab and dancing. There was great music and dancing. I would go back to the 1920s oh, wow. um, or the 50s and even the, I would like to go back to the early 90s. <laughs> um, rave scene, music scene because I think that again music had exploded at that time it became quite experimental uh -huh. and instead of it being a lot of um, the same music companies a lot of the groups were independent and music was really really um, coming to the fore and I liked a lot of the clothes back then as well and um, the 1920s the flapper girls dresses were great so <laughs> if I was going to go back I would like to find out how how it all began as well how life came about so that would be mine. I would like to wow. go to the future as well. To, I would just like to see how advanced we'd become or with technology. Um, so that would be my answer. Brilliant. That's a great answer. Brilliant. That's Brilliant. better than our answers, well. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I think that also the, 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 the dress sense in the Victorian era, you know, when ladies had beautiful dresses and guys were all yeah, dressed, everyone dressed. So, yeah, there's definitely times then. And I think, as, as Tom says, that it'd be great if, if we could go forward to the future and we would have you know some of the cures for some of the, the illnesses we have today but then again maybe we would all be living to 150 and that wouldn't be such a good idea <laughs> <laughs> but th thanks for calling great question great question, great question. Heather okay thank thanks you nice talking to you both thank you bye bye, -bye. The best. thanks bye. Heather bye. bye take care another wonderful show with whiskey and our guest Karen Betts if for suggestions on how we can build on the show's success and any ideas that you might have just keep them flowing in the best ones we receive will get a copy of the Scottish Enlightenment book by Arthur Herman, signed by Tom and Willie. Full details on how to enter and for all you need to know about today's show and how you can get involved and connect visit thisisgo.co.uk Don't forget you can put questions to Tom and Willie by emailing gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk and you can join the Twitter conversation at hashtag gohunterandhockey your business show with Hunter and Hockey. Listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you get your podcasts. podcasts.